We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. This is Greg Olson, inviting you to check out my new Blue Wire podcast, TE1, where I interview tight ends throughout the history of the NFL who have helped revolutionize the position. TE1 is presented by the Chevy Silverado. The Silverado is all about grit. It's strong and dependable, exactly like playing tight end. Just like the incredible players we sit down with on the podcast, the Chevy Silverado is in a league of its own. Strong, advanced, and dependable. Download TE1 today wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Veterans Minimum, and the day is finally here. I have done over 1,200 podcasts in my life. Whether it was the Jerks Wrestling Podcast back in the day, whether it was D-Generation Bets, whether it was all the episodes of VM that I've done in the history of the show, Patreon exclusives. I've been doing this a while. I have never been more excited for a conversation than I am today. I am joined by Steve Murphy and Javier Pena the DEA agents, which the hit show Narcos from Netflix is based on the two gentlemen that helped take down Pablo Escobar. If you guys know anything about me, I am fascinated by the cartel era in Colombia. I am fascinated by Pablo Escobar, how he was able to manipulate people and his claim to fame and his rise to power. I'm also fascinated by Colombia and the Colombian women. I've said too far. Let me not digress too much. An honor, a privilege, and a big shout out to Javier Pena and Steve Murphy for giving me their time to share their story. Crazy, man. Crazy. Very surreal moment for me. This one really means a lot to me. I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I did. Sit back, relax, and congrats. Steve Murphy and Javier Pena. 
how they took down Pablo Escobar. I'm working hard for respect in my city. I'm working hard for respect. Yeah. You think you got it? I got it for real. You think you got what I got? Uh. This one for those they forget in my city. This one for those they forget. Yeah. This dog off the leash and it's ready to kill. Homie, go finish your mail. Ladies and gentlemen, my guests today are two individuals who. I think it's fair to say, guys, and, you know, feel free to hype yourselves up, gentlemen. You guys have to be in the Mount Rushmore of DEA agents and people in, in, in the spotlight in your craft. Mr. Steve Murphy and Javier Pena, the, the, the goat of goats when it comes to DEA agents, took down Escobar. They're, they're, I'm speechless, guys, because I'm such a big fan I feel like I know you guys, which is the craziest part, I guess, with technology and social media and all these documentaries I've seen. Stephen Murphy, Javier Pena, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me. Nick, thanks for having us on the show. And, and you know what? You're good for our egos. Thanks very much. <laughs> I do what I can to make my guests feel comfortable and happy and excited. Nick, I love, I love that. Yeah, I love that Mount Rushmore, man. That, hey, put it up there. Yeah. Listen, I, you know, I've, I've always been, so I like to give my audience interesting is something I was telling you gentlemen beforehand. And I've always been fascinated by the Pablo Escobar, his, his claim to fame, how he's, you know, he's spoken about in hip hop music and there's movies made of him and there's the Robin Hood factor. And I mean, you guys have seen it all. Uh, I don't think anyone could tell the story better than you two individuals. I want to just start off with the Narcos series. It's one that I've watched four times over. Steve, you have that fantastic poster in the background as well. And you guys have the shirts on too. How much influence did you two in particular, and Javier, I'll start with you. Did you have on this series as a whole? Well, you know what, on the series, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to Steve here because he can explain a little bit better, but we were hired as consultants, Nick, to tell them the true story of Pablo Escobar. And remember, we're not movie people. We're not TV people. We had just uh, retired. And our idea, because we've done documentaries, and, and, you know, documentaries want to know the real truth. So... When we go up there, we met with the writers and we talked to them. We told them the real true life story because, you know, Steve and I lived it. We were there during the Pablo Escobar chase. And then uh, all of a sudden, you know, we started seeing the scripts come back. Says, Man, that's not exactly what we told them. What, what's going on? And I'll be honest, then when the series comes out, wow, it was like, I told Steve, I called him up and said, man, no one's going to watch this. This is a bunch of BS. You know, say, you know what I'm talking about? And uh, all of a sudden, after a while, man, it was just, it was a world type uh, viewing that people all over the world were watching it. it. It's something we didn't expect. It was a 360, you know what I'm saying? Where people were like... Uh, just uh, hooked on the series. The ratings uh, were way up, and it's something we didn't expect. And it, it's entertaining. It's uh, you know, there's, there's you know, we hadn't learned about uh, what is it called, the artistic licenses in Hollywood, and that makes you so. It's a great show, but you know, when it first came out, see, I was expecting 
difference because we we had never done a TV show. So, uh, but I'll, I'll let Steve Steve uh, could explain it a little bit better. You know? Yeah. And just to give you an idea, we, we were approached by two producers through a mutual friend of mine here in DC and I went and met with them. Uh, but you know what? They, they both had personal agendas. They wanted to take our story and one guy wanted to make a political statement out of it. And you know, that's not what this was all about. So we turned them both down and, and when we got a call from Eric Newman, who's the creator of Narcos, um, I turned him down on the phone and I'm pretty sure he probably fell out of his chair <laughs> when I said no, but, uh, yeah, make a real long story short. He flew to DC with two writers. I had dinner with them and, and Javier and I were in direct communication with each other through the whole thing. And, and, uh, our personalities clicked with Eric and the crew. And, and, uh, I, I bust, I started busting their chops as soon as I got to the, ho to the restaurant and, and they had a good sense of humor. And it just kind of all fell into place. And so at the end of the, of the evening, Eric said, he said, well, what are you going to do now? And I said, well, I'll talk to Javier, but I'm going to recommend that we move forward with you guys and see what's going to happen. And he said, okay. He said, listen, before we leave, he said, why are you guys so hesitant to tell your story? And we said, Eric, you know, the last thing we want to happen is that anybody would ever glorify a mass murderer, a narco terrorist like Pablo Escobar. And he promised us that night. He said, I promise you, we will not do that with this series. And, and in our opinion, he's lived up to his word. So we're real happy working with Eric. That's it, it's fascinating that you mentioned that because I have, so I grew up in Queens in uh, New York city. And I like to tell people that are not from New York city, friends that I've met with the, some of the traveling that I've done. And I went away to school in uh, Buffalo. I went to Buffalo state. And even Buffalo State, gentlemen, it's, even though it's New York State, it's completely different, Buffalo. Mm -hmm. And I like to tell people that New York City itself could be its own country because it's not like this anywhere else in the United States. And the reason why I bring that up is I had a lot of Colombian friends and even some family members, married people that are Colombian too. I'm Greek is my background. And man, it's, it's unbelievable the conflicting reports you hear about a guy like Pablo Escobar because you have people that think the Robin Hood thing with him where he he fed the poor and you know some of his uh Sicarios that I I feel like that's part of my vocabulary now I've heard that so many times over the years yeah. it's it's guys that they looked up to him as like a godlike figure but then on the flip side you see all the craziness that he's done and you know, Javier and, and Steve, you two gentlemen actually saw it firsthand. So I love that you mentioned that to him, Steve. What was his what was his feedback on that? Uh, well, I mean, they, they lived up to their words. So um, and there was, you know, when it came to uh, reviewing our contracts, we hesitated because and it turns out, you know, we're learning as we go here. We're, we're not movie people or TV people. We're cops. So we were learning as we go and, and um, there was a clause in our contract that said that, and we didn't know this was Netflix at the time, that the owner of our contract could transfer the show over to another producer. Well, there's, you know, there's one producer in particular, I won't mention names in Hollywood that, that we would never want to work with and we would not want him to have access to this story. And that caused a, about a week delay on getting the contracts approved. Um, and, and Eric called me. He's like, what's going on with you guys? Why are you not signing? What's the problem here? And I explained it to him. And even he laughed about it. He says, listen, 
none of us producers, the good producers in Hollywood want to work with this guy either. So I promise you, we're not going to, you know, it will not be sold to him and it has not been. Um, but you know, they were great to work with, uh, I was telling you about the, the, uh, literary licensing that's, that's included in our contracts that, you know, they can change our stories. It's just a fancy way of saying they can lie about what really happened. But the truth is it came out with a great action series. You know, nobody wanted to show us sitting in the embassy writing reports all day and going to boring meetings. And, you know, that's the stuff that you just have to put up with. So we're real happy with the way Narcos came out. Javier, how about yourself? How'd you feel about that, that whole conflict between not having him be polarized, Pablo Escobar, that is, as this, you know, uh, hero where really he was a villain and a narco-terrorist, like you guys have mentioned? And Nick, you, you bring up a good point right now. You know, that's the, one of the things we hear all over the world, that Robin Hood uh, uh, aura about Pablo Escobar. And you know what? You, you, you had it right, Nick. Uh, Pablo Escobar, uh, like you said, uh, the thugs, the sicarios loved him. And uh, you know what? I, I tell the story when this is real life. Uh, I helped uh, arrest one of those young sicarios, 15 years old at the time. And uh, I remember when he uh, confessed to us, he told me that he loved Pablo Escobar, that he was willing to die and kill for Pablo Escobar. Then I started asking him more. And he said, you know what? He's given us, he's taken, a, he's given me money where I can take my mother out of poverty. She's got a house now. She's got food on the table. Uh, we have a little bit of money and it's all because of, of Pablo Escobar. So, and he said, you know what? I'll, I'll be dead by 23 years old. He was 15 years old at the time. And then he confessed to me that he had already killed 10 police officers. When Pablo Escobar started the war in Colombia, he put bounties on cops, on police officers. And Nick, you know how much he was paying per dead uh, officer? was $100 a head. Ain't that pathetic? Something you've never heard of. $100 for a human life. And this young thug, uh, you know, admitted to 10 kids. 10 police officers and yeah, it's a hundred dollars a hit. Uh, but I love, and I will kill for, uh, Pablo Escobar. And, and you talk about the way he would recruit this, uh, thugs, Sicarios, he would sell gold to the poverty areas in Medellin. And, uh, there was a place called, we always heard about it on the radio, meeting at La Terraza. Wow. We never need La Terraza. You know what it was? was one of the oldest Catholic churches in the poverty area of Medellin and had a terrace around it. So Pablo would go and all these thugs knew he was coming. So when Pablo, you know that charismatic attitude he had? Hug him, kiss him. And uh, all, all of a sudden, you know, all these thugs say, Pablo, who, who do you want me to kill, man? Uh, you know, yep, they he gave them uh, money, but in return, he wanted people killed and this thugs would volunteer and have no conscience uh, about it. So it was that, you know, we always say, we don't uh, agree Pablo Escobar was not Robin Hood. Did Robin Hood put uh, a bomb on a commercial airline? 
Did Robin Hood kill the next president of Colombia? Did Robin Hood kill thousands and thousands of innocent people? Of course not. So we try to discredit that myth, but it's out there. And you hit it right on the head. There's movies, there's songs. We see, right, Steve? We go to show sometimes people wear their Pablo Escobar shirts. Uh, you know, the, 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 the image of him. So it's... Uh, it's something that you know we try to portray that to the to the writers at, at, at Netflix, they, and it's a great series. Like you said, it's that uh, that licenses and you know, if you've seen my character, man, I'm doing all sorts of stuff. And when we do our Europe uh, presentations, right? I mean, we go all over the world. Everybody thinks I'm a dirty agent. You know, <laughs> I said, if, if I was dirty guys, I'd be getting out of prison right about now if I could. Yeah. Things they, they claim to be. So it, it's an entertaining series. There is fact to it. The chronology is accurate. That make no mistake about the series. But however, there's artistic licenses. For sure. And also, anytime you try to make a series, I have a buddy of mine who's a director. You have to bring some form of entertainment too. Because, like you said, Steve, you know, for as fascinating as your careers were, I don't know if an entire series of you being in an office the whole time would make it the big explosion that was the Narcos series on Netflix. No, and, you know, so we have this speaking business too. This is our fifth year. Of course, COVID has really shut us down. But um, we're for the first four years, we averaged 75 appearances per year around the world. And the whole purpose of doing this, and as well as our book, is to tell the truth, you know, that, that we want the world to know what really happened. Love Narcos, love Eric Newman and the whole, all the writers, everybody we worked with, producers. But same token, we want the world to know the truth about this. And, and you know, it's nice. We go places and people say, hey, you guys are true American heroes. We don't subscribe to that. We're not, we don't feel like heroes. We were a couple of professional law enforcement officers that got to work a really big law enforcement case. You know, we knew that would be a case of a lifetime but that doesn't make you a hero for doing your job. And the one point we were going to get across to the world, and I'm, I'm probably jumping the gun a little bit here, but you know, we hope to reiterate this throughout the interview is the true heroes in this whole thing are the Colombian national police because they took mm. their country back. You know, Narcos shows that I was on the roof when Pablo was killed. I wasn't there. I was back at the base. So this is a straight out Colombian national police operation. And that's, that's why we bring it up because those are the true heroes. Wow, that's interesting. So, so, but, but there's the picture of you over his body. You showed up after the fact. Right. I actually rode out to the scene. I was in Colonel Martinez's office as the operation was going down, and I was listening on the radio, you know, as, as Colonel Martinez is giving orders on what to do. And then it got real quiet there for a couple of minutes. And, of course, we now know that's when the gun battle was, was raging there. Uh, and then one of the majors that we worked with came up on the radio and says, Viva Colombia, Pablo is dead. Well, while this was going on, you know, the colonel had already authorized to get the troops together. We're heading out there. Well, when, you, when he says get the troops together, that's 600 armed people we got to get together. You know, you got to issue weapons. You got to have a roll call, make sure you got everybody, issue assignments, get the vehicles out. That doesn't happen in just a few minutes. So, you know, by the time we were loading people up, the, the gun battle was over. But uh, I rode out to the scene with Colonel Martinez, and it just so happened that I had the only camera that worked during that time. Wow. So all the, all the photographs from there, you know, Javier and I own those. Um, 
and it, it's well kind of led to our speaking business and we're talking to nick dice today so it, it's any yeah. better than that right yeah yeah listen that's a that's, that's a win-win for me as well uh, yeah <laughs> i want to go back to something that you said really really interesting about those young sicarios man i don't know if this is going to come off wrong but isn't that the perfect type of individual to target if you were pablo escobar like a young kid coming from poverty you give them this new, I don't even want to say lavish lifestyle, but compared to, you know, getting a kid out of the slums of Medellin and, you know, here's a couple of hundreds or thousands of dollars. And before you know, it, you're taking your mom and your dad to filet mignon dinners. Like, isn't that the ideal person you should go after if you were a guy like Escobar? You know, Nick, that's a great point you made. And yes, you are 100% correct. And, and, and remember, you know, the, the Pablo Escobar reputation, everybody in Medellin knew who Pablo Escobar was. So, you know, and, and this, like you said, this young kids, thugs, I call them, you know, because, I mean, uh, they idolized uh, Pablo Escobar. But it's, it was the perfect uh, person to recruit because uh, the comunas of Medellin, I know you have some you know, Colombian uh, listeners uh, out there, uh, the, the barrios, the comunas, uh, you know what, and, uh, you know, and I don't know how how the word sicario, I mean, it, it goes back, right, to, you know, great, you know, uh, assassins, and, uh, and then uh, there's been movies made, I remember there was one, La Virgen de los Sicarios, the Virgin of the Sicarios, right? But growing up poor, in poverty, and at this time, Medellin was wild, wild west. Remember, there was a lot of other gangs out there, drug gangs. So uh, it, it was common to start killing people. There's a famous lady from Medellin, Griselda Blanco. I'm sure you know a lot of people have heard about her. Uh, worked in uh, Miami, just as ruthless as some of those guys, even more more ruthless. So she herself had killed a lot of people, but you know, their favorite way of killing people, and one of the favorite ways of killing people in Medellin was two guys in the motorcycle, right? The guy in the back would shoot, weave in and out of traffic, you'd be gone, they, they, they would never uh, get caught. So uh, these young thugs would volunteer, and, and as, I, as I mentioned, I mean, while we've had many experiences where Pablo himself, would recruit them, and they were in love with Pablo Escobar. They they wanted to do whatever the boss asked them to do. And remember, man, that's what what better bragging rights can you get, right? Hey, I work for the boss. Who Pablo Escobar? Oh man, hey, we uh, gotta leave right. him alone. <laughs> and which reminds me, and I gotta tell you a funny anecdote. We seized one of Pablo Escobar's uh, cars, and it, but it belonged to the sister. So when we took it. And I noticed, I said, what's that on the dashboard? It was a piece of paper, and a great piece of paper. The note said, uh, this is Pablo Escobar. This car belongs to my sister, and he mentioned her name on it. He said, if you're thinking of stealing it, do not. Remember, this is Pablo Escobar. Hey, what better insurance is that, right? <laughs> Who would want to steal that car? But anyway, but yeah, go, going back to it was the perfect uh, uh, young uh, thugs to go after, and they were vulnerable. They they always heard of, of Pablo Escobar, so 
now they have bragging rights, they have lavish, they have money. And uh, like you said, the, the comunas were very poverty-stricken areas uh, uh, in Medellin. And uh, so it was perfect grounds to recruit these people. I have here in some of my notes from hearing you guys throughout the years in uh, all these documentaries I've watched that during this Escobar era, highest murder rate in the whole world was in Colombia. Is that was that the case, Steve? Ninety-two and ninety-three, Medellin, Colombia was a murder, was the murder capital of the entire world. How so? What what drives you two to want to go down there? Was it, did they come with this offer? <laughs> I like how you're laughing already. Because Steve, also, you know, like Javier, you're Hispanic, right? Right. Yes, I am. So Steve, you know, you're you're white like I am. We, you kind of stick out like a sore thumb over there. So I'm, I'm what, English Irish. You don't get any whiter. <laughs> <laughs> so so what what drove you to want to go down there was it did you think in the back of your mind that this would be such a gigantic case or was this just you know this this hit my desk i gotta go to work well you know i'll, I'll go first mine's a little different i did not want to go to colombia i i had volunteered for mexico i wanted to in dea when you come on you got to do four years domestic so i did my four years in austin texas which is a great place you know the music capital of the world at that time. And I wanted to go see the real, the major leaguers, right? The major league uh, traffickers. So I put in for Mexico and uh, they made a mistake. And uh, so my boss says, Javier, did you put in for Colombia? I said, no, sir. I put in for Mexico. He said, well, you got selected for Colombia. He said, you want to fight it? You want to try to, you know, get out of it? Because you have a legit... I said, nah, you know what? Let me go check the map where Colombia is. So that's how I ended up in uh, going to Colombia. It was, it was by... Mine was by mistake. And then when I get there, another... Just uh, one of the bosses who knew me from Texas had now been assigned to Colombia. Guy by the name of Joe Top. So he knew my work ethic, we were workers, and he said, oh, yeah, I'm going to sign you the Pablo Escobar case. The senior agent who was working it was getting ready to leave Colombia. So there had to be a transition. So that, that was my world into, into Pablo Escobar. You know, for me, um, I'll be real honest with you. You know, we were in Miami, and, and my wife and I, I grew up in Tennessee and West Virginia. She's from West Virginia. So we're small-town country people. And... Um, after four years in Miami, I had a partner shot in 1989 and the informant was killed in a deal that had gone bad. But my wife was a registered nurse and, and she always liked the re really action areas, of the hospital, the emergency room and the trauma centers and, you know, the ICU and things like that. And uh, she came to me after about three years. She said, you know, it's been real exciting here. What's the next most exciting thing we could do? Well, I was working a case with our office out of Barron Key, and I said, you know, we could go to Bogota, Colombia. And she's like, <laughs> I know she looked at me like I had three eyes, but, uh, you know, she thought about it, and she came back to me, and I introduced her to one of the agents who was up TDY in Miami, and we had dinner with him, and she grilled him for about three hours at dinner, and, and uh, she came to me a couple of weeks later, and she said, are you still interested? And I said, oh, yeah. She said, if we're going to do it, let's do it while we're young. So I put in for, I actually put in for Barranquilla, uh, was selected to go there. And then they needed a Spanish speaking agent right away. And I had to go to language school. So they were sending my transfer 
then I was later I put in for Bogota, I got that. Uh, and that's how we ended there, ended up there. And, you know, going there, I didn't know Javier. I didn't know his partner at the time, Gary Sheridan. And you don't know what cases you're going to be assigned to when you get there. You get there and, and they, you get to know everybody in the office and they see where you fit in and maybe who you click with. And I clicked with Javier and Gary. Uh, and that's how I got assigned to the, uh, the Medellin cartel case. Of course, then Gary got promoted and he moved to Barron Key out of Bogota. So that left Javier and I working together. Oh, wow. So you answered my follow-up question. You two didn't know each other until then. No, and we're mind readers, so we can, we know what's on your mind there, Nick. Yeah, yeah. Listen, you guys are professionals. You guys do this all the time. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talks. Here comes the money. Even though sports had a break, your business didn't. You have to keep moving, and that makes hiring more important than ever. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one, just like this podcast, job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. I said that so enthusiastic because it wasn't all caps, and I'm just trying to do my job here because I'm a professional. You can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier like sponsored jobs which are there to be shown to three and a half times more of a chance for a result in the process of being hired with 73 percent of online job seekers visiting indeed each month indeed is going to get you the important hire you need right now indeed is offering our listeners a free 70 five dollar credit to boost your job posts which means more quality candidates will see it fast try indeed out with a free 75 dollar credit at indeed.com slash blue wire this is their best offer available anywhere go right now to indeed.com slash blue wire terms and conditions apply valid through september 30th I got to ask you guys about this Popeye individual. This guy, um, I have his name here. Where is it? John Yairo Velasquez. He was the big hit man for Pablo. He he was like a YouTube sensation recently as well. He had over a million followers. I was reading somewhere, Javier, that if you went to Colombia and, you know, the guy was free at this point. This is just recently, a couple of years ago. You can pose with him having a gun to your head for like $250. It was like the things people do. And look, I know I'm a, I'm a millennial and I come from this era of social media. But man, some of the things people do for the likes and the clicks is unbelievable. And, and Javier, tell me a little bit about this Popeye guy. What's over yeah. 3,000 murders he confessed to. Right. Uh, he committed 250 of them. Uh, I watched the documentary Drug Lords, and, and Steve, your face there when you're talking about him, you're just like, he was a mass murderer. And you're, you're kind of saying it, I wouldn't say laughing, but you're like, guys, don't idolize this dude. This guy was a villain in every sense of the word. You know what, Nick? Uh, you hit it right on the head. You know, they tried to get us on stage with him. They tried to get us to talk with him. There's been a couple of documentaries. 
And we told the producers, I remember the, the one of them uh, was a Canadian company, great guys. They did a great show, great documentary, but they said, hey, uh, we got a hold of Popeye and we want you all to talk to him. And he said, we will never understand, never talk to Popeye. We will never get on the same stage with him anywhere nearby. This guy's a mass murderer. He's admitted to killing lots of people. He, he's killed police officers. And remember, we lost a lot of friends there. Mm. Steve and I had a lot of police officer friends that were killed by Pablo Escobar. I told a story where we went to a funeral. At the church, we had eight coffins, eight coffins of police officers. The main guy was a good, good friend of mine. Uh, killed by Pablo Escobar. And when I say killed by Pablo Escobar, under the orders of Pablo Escobar, so I'm sure right. Popeye was involved. Popeye has admitted to killing uh, tons of people. I think he puts a number at 300 or something that he himself uh, helped uh, kill. Uh, you know what, Steve and I, we came up with a number and based on, on all the... Uh, all the uh what is it the, the the terrorism you know all the people killed we put the number killed by Pablo Escobar at between I mean roughly it's anywhere from 12 to 15,000 that's conservative innocent people killed by Pablo Escobar if you count the car bombs the assassinations the bounties the the buildings the newspaper editors the commercial airline people killed by Escobar anyway so Popeye claims that the number is closer to 50,000 people. Can you imagine? And this is from a first-hand Sicario. Uh, Popeye, we were after him. He, when Pablo Escobar surrendered, you know, Pablo picked one, about seven Sicarios. One of them was, uh, was a guy named uh, Popeye, John Jairo Velasquez Vasquez. Uh, after Pablo escaped from the prison, we find tons of photos of Popeye. Uh, he, used to dress, he used to dress as a woman inside the prison parties. We've got, I mean, you know, he's at the bar, Pablo Escobar, I don't know if you knew, Nick, but he had a little bar, you know, a drinking bar, right, mm -hmm. at, at the prison uh where they would, you know, I mean, entertain, you know, the, the parties. Uh, but anyway, and uh, I am surprised because once Popeye got released, and I think he did about 20, 22 years in jail, somewhere in there. Anyway, once he got released, I was like, man, someone's going to kill this guy. He survived, and I think, you know, and you know he just died, right, about yeah. four months ago with stomach uh, uh, cancer, but yeah, he, he was charging people. I mean, we've heard stories from the documentary people that he was, he was charging. It was just a lot of money he would charge, but people were paying him and civilians go to Medellin. They would take, yeah, take their picture. They, uh, uh, you know, just to talk to him. And, uh, we talked to friends in the documentary business who have, talk to Popeye and they say, this guy's out of control. He's, he's crazy, you know, just uh, charging and just uh, kind of kind of out there until, like I said, he recently died of, of uh, stomach cancer. Yeah, Steve, even 
even when you hear him talk in some of these, he's just like, yeah, you know, I killed this many people. Just like, you know, I would just run up behind them and shoot them. And he's just telling you this, like, you're telling me before we started recording, like, how your day was going. You know, it's just his his energy was so, it was captivating the way he was, because I was on the edge of my seat listening to this. But in the back of my mind, I was just like, why am I a- attached to him telling me this? Right. Right. I mean, he was, he was a psychopath by every sense of the word. You know, one thing that really got to me is, I mean, these guys, they killed cops left and right. I think there's over a thousand Colombian police officers were killed during this Escobar reign. Well, Pablo, uh, Popeye, when he comes out, he has a tattoo, El Jefe de Mafia, the, you know, the, the mafia boss. And there's, I saw pictures on the internet of him posing with young Colombian police officers He's got his arm around him and he's holding up his tattoo so you can read, you know, that he was a criminal. And these young cops don't realize who they're taking a picture with, that he killed all their brother officers years and years ago. Um, so, you know, it's, it's this, this, I don't want to call it an adoration, but a, a fantasy of these guys. Um, you know, and even at my age, I'm still interested. I'm, I'm reading books now about the Mexican mafia and, and, you know, just different things that are going on in the world. I'm not by any means uh, idolizing these guys. You just want to learn more about them, about, you know, just kind of figure out how you can combat them. But it's just amazing the popularity. And that's what made Narcos so popular because people Mm -hmm. were just enamored with knowing more about Pablo Escobar. I I don't understand it, but, you know, I'm kind of happy because again we're talking with you we get to travel around the world you know we've been involved in a lot of projects that we never would have been if we weren't involved in this case javier you mentioned the the prison in passing and and steve uh this wasn't really a prison was it like this seemed like he had a king-sized bed there's he had his own pull was it a slap in the face to you two and the dea and the Colombian police that were going after him to him say, all right, I surrender, but these are the circumstances. Right. Right. And the, yeah, let me just preface it with the surrender was one of the, wow. We we just did not believe, you know, the conditions. And when the government of Colombia accepted that, it was it was a slap in the face to everybody, to the world, not 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 only to us, but you know what about all the people that he killed? You know the victims of of the Avianca airline. Uh, basically, the surrender was five years in his prison that he was going to build, and he paid for it. He hired his own guards, took his own sicarios with him, and nobody could come and visit him. Right. Uh, so when we knew it was a farce, of course we did. But then, Nick, if you look at the other side of the coin, you know, at remember the terrorism war was one of the worst we had ever seen, you know, the innocent people. It was a daily basis of killings, of bombings, of, uh, like I said, uh, buildings, assassinations. It was a daily occurrence. Uh, so when he told Colombia, I'm going to surrender and I'm not going to, I'm going to stop my bombing campaign. If you're the person, what would you do, right? I mean, you're trying to save life. So I really, there's two sides to the coin. We didn't like it. The other side of the coin was that if we let him surrender, it's going to stop. Yep, and it did stop. However, after uh, 
after his escape, uh, when we went in and we went in, I, I remember the very next day was like, what, <laughs> what? This is no prison. Yeah, it, it was a country club setting, you know, he had his own apartment, kitchen, he had cooks, he had, uh, there was no sales, you know, it was just a, uh, like a public bars. It was a penthouse apartment. He had the, his view was the city of Medellin. It was a beautiful view. And then the back, uh, he had the soccer field where we found out that, you know, professional soccer teams would come in and uh, play with him. Uh, like I said, he had a bar drinking, you know, uh, parties, all this fancy clothes, all this women's uh, negligee type stuff inside the prison for all the parties. So it was a country uh, club setting. Uh, the guards, remember, he hired. <laughs> mm. He paid for them. So their allegiance were, were, were to him. And uh, so, uh, you know, he had it made, but he screwed up. You know, he, he made a you know, that ego that he had, he had, he made a mistake and that's what caused uh, the government to come in and transfer him out to another, to a real prison. That's where the firefight and that's where the famous escape, which we, Steve and I, like you said, were then part of that, the famous, I call it the search blog by the Colombian National Police. Yeah, but uh, the prison, and you know what, there's a story and I get, uh, uh, I get ripped a lot that I slept in his bed, right? And it was a dare, and I'll tell you all, and it's it's in the book. It was pretty much a dare. The, the colonel in charge of the search was a good friend of mine, uh, Colonel Arango, and he like said, oh, yeah, I bet you won't sleep with it. Yeah, I will. I mean, I changed the sheet, of course, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, but I just could not. But you know what, Nick? All through the night, man, I, and you know, and please, this is, I'm not trying to, but he had a, a, a religious uh, picture of the Virgin Mary. It was in ceramic. I had never seen uh, just that, that, the photo. I mean, it was a ceramic, uh, delicately made, you could tell, worth tons of money, but over his bed. So I've always wondered, you know, uh, praying to the Virgin Mary and, and killing as many innocent uh, people as possible. And so that's will always stay in my in my mind. But uh, anyway, so yeah, it, it was a country club uh, uh, setting. They called it the cathedral, la catedral. Then, like I said, uh, you seen the pictures. He called them chalets. He had chalets built on the side of the prison, where there were retreat houses, there were camouflage. And my question is, how did he build them? And it was like on the side of the mountain. You know, so some of the best architects were out there building all his stuff, and uh, we suspected it. We never knew what was going on. Remember, there was no flyovers in mm -hmm. Colombia. Nobody could visit. So it was something we we had never expected. Well, you mentioned you mentioned the soccer field, and I always. Uh, soccer is my first love, I like to say, but my, my passion is uh, the NFL. But even, even the soccer team, Steve, whether it was the national team or even like the, the regular teams like, um, you know, Nacional from Medellin and, and America del, de, de Cali, how much, how much drug money was in soccer during that time as well? 
Well, you know, the, these guys were the owners of the teams. Um, even Rodriguez Gacha, who was one of the original founders of the Medellin cartel, was owner of a soccer team there in Colombia. Um, my wife and I befriended a Colombian couple um, that uh, actually his wife helped us adopt our first daughter. Oh. And he's a professional businessman and he came from a well-to-do family. He was educated in Germany. And the, the reason he went to Germany is because he wanted to become a professional soccer coach. So he comes back to Medellin after graduating, picks up an assistant coach position, and he's in Medellin working. And this was, you know, long before 93 when Escobar was killed. And he saw Rodriguez Gotcha show up, you know, and so he realized who the owner of the team was. And then later on, he saw Escobar at one of the games. And he said, you know, he's an honest businessman. He, you know, and that's the thing that, these narcos down there, they bring such a bad reputation to Colombians because it's a beautiful country and Colombians are great, fantastic people. You know, they're some of the most accepting people I've ever run into, but you've got this element of the narco traffickers plus the insurgent groups. You know, Colombia has the distinction of having the longest running civil war in the history of the entire world. So you've got all these elements that bring this bad reputation to this country. But anyway, my, my friend, he got out of it and he started, um, an eyeglass business um, just because he didn't want to be affiliated with, mm. he knew what was going on. He didn't want anything to do with those people. And you know what? You get in bed with those people. And eventually when they ask you to do something, you don't do it, you're going to pay a price. So I think he was probably, in my opinion, one of the smartest businessmen I've ever met, just a smart person because he was smart enough to get away from those people. Yeah. There was the famous story of, you know, the, the, the Colombian soccer team from like 91 to 94 when the World Cup was, was in the United States, uh, they, they were a dominant force. They were really, really good. And the goalkeeper for them, who has this like iconic video of him saving a ball, doing like a kick from behind, it's, it's unbelievable. Steve, I'll send you a video afterwards. It's one of the craziest things. But uh, Rene uh, Iguita, I think. Iguita. Iguita, there you go. Um, very iconic player for them. Long, like, dreadlock hair also. He famously went and visited Pablo Escobar there, and then they left him off the national team. And then fast forward to them during the World Cup, they have the, the famous incident of the own goal with Andreas Escobar, right. and then that leads to him coming back to Colombia, and then he's killed out on the streets. Was it – you mentioned the wild, wild west before, Javier – is that like the perfect analogy for what it was like during that era? Yeah, yeah. The Wild Wild West, we, we put it because when Escobar traveled, he had bodyguards. He had 10 cars with him, about 40, 50 bodyguards with him. They'd go into restaurants. They would close them down. Nobody in, nobody out. Then he would pick up the tab, give people money. You know what I'm saying? So it was ostentious. You know, the paintings they were buying, they were buying Monet's, whatever, million dollars uh, paintings. There was a lady in Medellin who, I don't know where she had the connections, but, you know, all the traffickers used to go with her. So tons of paintings. You know, we, Steve talks about the famous painting uh, in at the at the jail, you know, owned by Pablo Escobar, Botero's, and a Dolly uh, painting there. But, and, and it was just, 
you know, the, the money was, the, the, you know, the tons of money that they were getting. So soccer teams that were buying them, yep. And it's, and I remember the Rene Gita, we found photos of him inside the prison where the soccer team would come in. And then the famous, they call it, remember in New York, the Alto Gold, which you mentioned. Mm -hmm. now, the, the other Escobar, who was an innocent guy, goes back to Medellin and I know the story. Uh, he, he's at a bar and there's a trafficker who worked for Pablo Escobar. And there, it was just at a bar and it was just, uh, you know what, the trafficker and, uh, and we raided his ranch later on, found a lot of dough. But uh, basically it was, I lost a lot of money because of you uh to the to to the righteous to the innocent escobar the, the soccer player yeah, andreas escobar yeah yep, andreas escobar and then all of a sudden it started into this guy started getting pissed and more pissed because of all the money he lost on that game and uh, i remember that game in fact steve and i watched it at a, you know in new york city because we oh, were wow. there yeah we were there for the trial of la kika in New York City, that Danny Munoz was getting, getting back to uh, the soccer player. The trafficker ends up killing him because he is so mad at, at the money he lost. And the trafficker worked for Pablo Escobar. I'll always uh, remember that. So it was just, a, uh, like I said, it was just a jealousy type. I lost money off of you. They, that's how they, they killed him. And, and I think, if I'm mistaken, it was at a bar in uh, around Medellin where the soccer player was killed uh but uh, that's the famous the famous auto goal which is famous in Colombia anybody who saw that game we saw it I'll always uh, remember that you know make the well, made a goal by mistake correct yeah you're a soccer player but yeah Steve let me ask you a question here this might this might be a curveball but does that death of Andres Escobar happen if Pablo Escobar is still around? Um, yeah, probably. Probably. <laughs> I mean, the, the guy just, he has no conscience. He has no remorse. He has no sense of guilt feelings. His ego is completely out of control. It's all about power and Pablo. You know, the, the famous Hispanic machismo, uh, which is typically... Uh, more associated with uh, Central Mexico and Central America. But, you know, I have no doubt that Pablo would have had him taken out. He, he might even have had him brought to the prison and let him try to explain himself and then kill him. Um, but this, this guy would just, yeah, that's just a way of life for him. You don't like it, you kill somebody. Last couple of questions here. I keep eyeing the clock because I can speak to you gentlemen forever, but I, I do, do want to not keep you around for, for too long. I'm I'm enamored with Miami. It's one of my favorite places to visit. And I've seen before pictures of South Florida from like the 60s and 70s. And then you look during the 80s and 90s, the evolution of the big condos and, and Ocean Drive and Collins Avenue. Steve, how much influence did the, the cartel of South America, Colombia, influence everything that you see in Miami now as far as the the structure and the building you know what Miami you can talk to to native Miamians down there and, I, and I'm with you I, this one of my in fact my wife and I say that's our favorite city in the United States 
we loved living down there. We loved the excitement, the glamour, the, the neon lights, all that stuff. I mean, we just really fell in love with Miami. We still love it down there. It's just, you know, we're too old to handle that traffic now, but <laughs> um, it is still our favorite city. But you can talk to people from down there and they'll tell you the city was built on narco dollars. You know, when I got there in 87, um, if you see some money from somebody and you suspect a drug trafficker, you could bring a drug dog in. And if he alerted to that money for the presence of cocaine, that was reasonable suspicion that we could go ahead and seize that money as drug proceeds. Well, it wasn't long after I got there in 87 that they stopped that because they determined that every dollar bill down there, regardless of the denomination, that cocaine was so prevalent, all money in South Florida was drug tainted. You know, it was just, you see the ostentatious buildings that are down there. Um, I, and that's one of the things I love about it. But all of that was built on narco dollars. You know, you hear the stories where people would go in and buy a Lamborghini or a Rolls Royce or, or whatever, you know, whatever their uh, car of choice is, their fancy car. And they bring in a brown paper bag with $100,000, $150,000 pay cash. Same thing when they would go buy yachts. And that's kind of what led to some of the IRS rules that were put into place. It got to the point where that's what led to the $10,000 limit. If, if there's more than $10,000 deposited, there has to be a, a cash transaction record made of that. But that's how crazy it was back then. You know, you hear the older cops that I met down there that, you know, have cut their bones in South Florida and they talk about filing, finding bales of cocaine and marijuana, just wash up on the beaches. It's just I tell you what, I was in the Bahamas one time and I was flying patrol with the U.S. Coast Guard, and the Bahamian National Police, and we saw what looked like a big bale. You know, I'm a country boy. It looks like a bale of hay. So they, we were in one of the old Coast Guard Sikorskis and they put me in the basket and lowered me down. Long story short, 72 kilos was in that bale. 72 kilos of cocaine had just washed up on the beach there in Freeport. You know, we used to make a joke. If you were if you were a cop in South Florida and you couldn't make a drug case, you needed to find another occupation because it's falling <laughs> out of the skies. Man, Javier, how much how much cocaine was being smuggled into the United States during that era? Well, remember, Nick, Pablo was responsible for eighty percent of the cocaine that was reaching the world. We were estimating the shipments were about twenty five hundred kilos a daily basis being smuggled out. I remember seeing the, you know, the clandestine airports, there'd be five, six airplanes, you know, all, all going either to Mexico, Central America, or into the South uh, Florida area. So like I said, it was a billion dollar industry for uh, Pablo Escobar. And like Steve said, the banking system was there, was, there was, at that time, there weren't a lot of rules. And if you've seen, you know, I tell people, you've seen the movie Scarface, remember? Yeah. Uh, banking, the bags of money, that's pretty accurate description of Miami back in the mid 80s when the, uh, when the cocaine uh, people were out of control. I mean, it was just tons of money, but we would say we would calculate 2,500 kilos on daily basis. So that's why billions were coming back to uh, Pablo Escobar in Medellin, Colombia. Was it true that you you and the DEA would find just planes abandoned because they would just like leave them in, in forests or on islands because of all the money they were bringing in, Steve? 
Oh, absolutely. It's, there are planes in the Bahamian waters down there that you can see below the surface. Some crashed on land. And that was just the cost of doing business. And you know what? Here's what's scary. You can go, there's a section of northern, northern Guatemala right now that's used for drug trafficking. It's a very swampy area. So you can go there. The Colombians are still flying plane loads up there. And when they land and get the dope off, they just push the planes off to the side and set them on fire. So it, it's continuing. And, you know, additionally, they're using the, the self-propelled semi-submersible and the self-propelled fully submersible submarines that are homemade. Um, these guys, you know, they've got a ton of money. They don't have a rule book like we have in law enforcement or the United States. And they'll come up with any method they can to smuggle cocaine. But, you know, planes can carry so much. That's what made them a very attractive. All right. Last, last question. I've always been fascinated by this. Javier, how do you go about finding an informant? I come up to you and what's the, cause there was a lot of corruption there. Uh, politicians, police officers, uh, people in the army. What's that vetting process like? Say I come up to you and I'm like, you know, I want to, I want to rat out on Escobar and all these guys. How do you, yeah. Is there a protocol to trusting me? Is it a gut feeling? Is it just a coin flip? Like, what's that like? Because I can't, I can't imagine that's an easy concept. Yeah. It, you know what? It's all of the above. And, and the main thing, Nick, and I tell people, especially the young uh, agents coming on with DEA with informants, remember, they'll snitch for you, right? Mm. And they will snitch against you in a heartbeat. You got to corroborate that information. The basic rule of thumb is you corroborate them once you know that they're telling you the truth. Because you know there were there were informants that were sent by Pablo Escobar to give us false information to try to find out about them. Uh, you know the the you know the informants I used to love were the vendetta informants. You know what you know what Escobar killed my brother, killed my sister. I'm gonna snitch against him. You know they had something you know in, in the game on it. But once you corroborate that information, in a lot of them at this time, uh, you know the first thing they say, hey, you know what, Pablo Escobar is gonna eventually find out. He's gonna have me and my family killed. So as long as you know, and there's a lot of ways, but I'm not going to get into, but protect the informant, protect his family or her family, then we would uh, we would make a deal. And pretty much everyone in the new life, uh, obviously, they wanted to get out of, uh, uh, out of Colombia. We protect a lot of people, but, you know, like I said, the main thing is corroboration. Once you find out they're telling you the truth, you know, like I said, there'll be informants who, yeah, they'll give you a two kilos here and then they're going to be moving a thousand kilos while you're doing you know so it, it's a dirty game and remember the informant the ones who are involved had were crooks you know uh they they were in the business i didn't tell them to get in the business right i mean we obviously you got to protect them but then you know what and if they got to testify in court so be it so very very different yeah Steve, how about you? How did how did how did you go about it? Did you feel the same way? Absolutely, and you know you have to, and it's, this goes right in line with what Javier just told you. Is you have to determine what a person's motivation is for wanting to be a snitch. You know, is it? It's like you said. Is it a vendetta against somebody? Is he trying to take out his competition? Is it a jealousy issue? Because 
you know, another trafficker is dating his girlfriend or whatever. Um, have they found religion? Uh, are they just trying to make money? Are they working off a of beef that they've been arrested on? Um, and, and once you determine that motivation, that kind of gives you a direction on which way to go on how to cooperate. But you, you know, you have to, you can't just take a, an informant's word on anything. You know, mm -hmm. you have to cooperate with what he tells you. Um, we used to, quite honestly, in Miami, if, if we weren't out doing surveillance on bad guys, we might go do surveillance on our informants just to see what they're up to during the daytime. And that all helps develop his, his reliability when it comes time to court, go to court. Because once you catch them in a lie, all their testimony is no longer valid. So um, they're not the, I've met informants that are very endearing. They can win you over with their friendship, but like Javier said, they will stab you in the back in a heartbeat. If they're running loads, you know, just because they're working for you doesn't mean they've given up their criminal ways. Right. So if they're running a load and get caught that you don't know about, the first thing they're going to say is, Hey, I work for Steve Murphy or I work for Javier Pena. Of course, then, you know, the police officers call you and, they, and you, you're they're where and they're doing what, you know, so uh, we, we, uh, we give them a green light, go ahead and arrest them because we knew nothing about it. So they're snitches are a uh, uh, necessary evil within the drug, the law enforcement side of the drug world. Did you guys ever hear about any bounties placed on you two in particular? Yeah. <laughs> Pablo put a $300,000 price tag on our heads. Jeez. You know, but I got to be honest with you, Nick, and that sounds, it sounds horrible, but for me, the biggest threat I faced from that bounty is that my wife would kill me in my sleep because I was worth more dead than I was alive. <laughs> She's a tough girl. <laughs> I can imagine if she was, she was, uh, she wanted the action and being at ICUs and emergency rooms, like you said, I, I can't imagine her not being that well, woman. This is one of the things I, I really admired about when I first met her. I used to ride motorcycles as a young guy. She owned her own motorcycle. Now, how can you not love a woman that owns her own yeah, motorcycle, right? For sure. <laughs> Gentlemen, it, it's been an honor and a privilege. Uh, Javier, like you mentioned in the beginning, I say we start going with that, guys. The the, the GOATs, the Mount Rushmore of DEA agents. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know if you've heard it before, but yeah. there's always talks about who's the greatest of all time in their crap. Yeah, no. yeah listen, I'm giving you the co-sign. Yeah. Hey, Nick, I know you have a, a lot of uh, fan base, and I just want to do a shout-out for Colombia. It's a beautiful country. We encourage people to visit Medellin. It's one of the prettiest cities in the world. They call it the city of eternal spring. You ever have a chance? It's safe. It's beautiful uh, place uh, place to go visit. And like Steve said, reiterate again, the real heroes in all of this, please, is the Colombia National Police. Colonel Hugo Martinez, who recently passed away, he left the search block. So my hat's off, you know, our hat's off to them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if the other thing we'd say, Nick, is if people want to find out more about us, go to our website. It's www.deanarcos.com. There's everything on there from fan photos to uh, a calendar, which right now is blank <laughs> because the COVID has canceled all our events, but it'll, sh it'll show you when and where we'll be around the world. Uh, you can contact us through there. If you're interested in our book, you can order the book through there where you can get autographed and personalized copies. It's, 
it's uh, we have a professional do it. It's not a couple of retired cops trying to create a website. So it, it looks really good. So check us out. Now, listen, you guys, I take you guys for both being humble. I like to uh, disagree with that. I think you guys should be, you know, you guys are the goats, right? So the book is fantastic. I'm going to get one, a, a nice little, got to think of a nice personalized message uh, for yours truly. But Javier Pena, Steve Murphy, uh, gentlemen, it was an absolute honor. Thank you for your time. And I'll make sure I have all the contacts on the episode for my audience to be able to find you too. Okay. Nick, thanks for having us on the show, man. It's been a pleasure. Yes, me too. Thank you, Nick. It's been a real, real pleasure. Thank you, buddy. Before we go, big shout outs to our members of our Patreon, Orvica, Derek Pleates, Corey Johnson Hoops, Nick Chavez, Christopher Velasquez, and Bill's Mafia's own, my guy, Piz, Ryan Pisner. And a shout out to some of the newest members of our Patreon, and that is, as we load up right now, very unprofessional of me, but professional the way I bounce back. Nathan Johnson and Junior, my guy June from the Twitch gang. Much love, my fellow legends out there. I appreciate you all so much. Thank you. And this one for those they forget in my city. This dog off the leash and is ready to kill. Homie, go finish your meal. I'm coming for real. Taking that food right off of your grill. Nikki too ill. Can't let a drop of me spill. Clogging the lane. I'm feeling the strain. I'm here for the spot to be filled. Not to be cocky, but all of you watching while I'm in the cup paying property bills. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be able to be at a game this year, but you could still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season, from game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props. Oh my! Bet Online gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You could get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division and championship futures all day, every day. Head to Bet Online today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use the promo code BLUEWIRE at betonline.ag. That's one word, all one word, BLUEWIRE. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. 